This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have an interview with Ashley and Lee Hall from the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. Yes, with a very good engagement and wedding story. Yes, very dinosaur themed. Mm -hmm. We also have Dinosaur of the Day Montanoceratops, a bunch of news from SVP, and we're going to answer some of the question that listeners have sent in over the last few weeks. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons for supporting us. And this week, we would like to thank Kyle, Brendan Kavanov, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Marcy, Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, Jeremy, Scully, Avery, Crispy, Cody, Joaquin, and Jeb from Arkansas. Yeah, thank you so much, everyone. We really appreciate all of your support. So jumping into our SVP news... First up was a presentation by Snively, and we're all the way to Saturday, the last day of SVP for this week. And it was a really good start to the talks because they started, I think, 9 a.m.? 8 a.m. 8 a.m.? Oh, yeah. It was early. <laughs> and getting up on, like, the fourth day of a conference to sit in a room for several hours can be kind of daunting. But this was a really good talk to start it off with. So what Snively looked at was how fast a T-Rex could turn around relative to other large theropods. And to do that, they looked at two different turning methods. So if you think about like how you can turn around, you can do it in two ways. You can either do it while you're moving, meaning walking or running, basically meaning that you're just twisting one leg slowly as you're you know, doing a turn. But then the other option is that you can do it while standing still when both legs are planted and you're just kind of rotating slowly. And apparently they have pretty significant differences in sort of the geometry. So they wanted to look at both of them. And for their study, they simulated the T-Rex as weighing 9,500 kilograms. Ooh. It's a big animal. So, you know, we're talking about 10 tons. And the torque on the leg is the main factor in their agility. So that's why the weight is important and also which legs are being used to make the turn happen. So for both legs or one leg, what they found was that T-Rex is more agile than Allosaurus and other theropods. And for most of them, it was roughly twice as agile, which was really surprising to me. I always think of Allosaurus as kind of lighter and faster and all these kinds of things. And T-Rex is more lumbering, but clearly that's not the case, at least in terms of turning. And I think most of this is related to the fact that it had so much muscle and it could put more torque on that leg than these other animals could so it could turn more quickly. But in terms of how quickly it could turn, the way they put it in the presentation is that if a T-Rex was turning around to bite you, like you're behind the T-Rex, 
you could probably check your watch before you decided to run away because it would take a little while. That's a good tip. Yeah. But if you were a big ceratopsian or a hadrosaur, for example, which are the kinds of things that would try to eat, they couldn't do that. They would need to really hustle and might not make it. They probably have a hard time turning as well. Yeah, maybe even harder. Because if you're thinking about that sort of turning on one leg, the hadrosaur is still bipedal, but ceratopsians, the quadrupedal turning is not a rapid thing. It's like a large car. Yeah. They'd probably be better off just starting to move first and then trying to turn, I'm guessing. Maybe they could move backwards. <laughs> yeah. That might be dangerous, too, if you can't see where you're going. <laughs> Very true. So, yeah, I guess we need to think a little more carefully about T-Rex and how fast it could move compared to other theropods, because for its size, I guess it was pretty agile, which is it's awesome. terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like they said, though, not so much for humans. Terrifying yeah. for ceratopsians, maybe. For, yeah, most things that lived alongside it. Mm -hmm. Next up is an article that we hint at during our interview with the Halls, where it, it was reanalysis of Nanotyrannus versus Juvenile T-Rex. And Sabrina also made a really good YouTube video about this, kind of explaining the current state of the science and which specimens were used for the study. So you can check that out if you want some visuals. But what they did... What Woodward and others did for this one and what they presented on was that basically you've got this problem with the Cleveland specimen, which is the one that originally was named Nanotyrannus, in that it doesn't have any bones other than the skull. And in order to see if something is a juvenile or not, what you like to do is histology on a long bone. So you want to look at like a femur, maybe a rib or something to see if it's still growing rapidly. And you can't do that with the Cleveland specimen because it's a skull. You might be able to do it and get a little bit of information if they let you cut the skull open. But I don't know. <laughs> mm. It doesn't seem like a great use of a perfectly preserved skull. Yeah. There's a lot of other things you can do with the skull. Yeah. And I don't think it's a great indicator of development anyway. So what they did instead was they used postcranial material, meaning the bodies of Jane at the burpee, as well as Petey, which is also at the burpee. And they're very similar to the Cleveland specimen in terms of their like size and proportions. So they said that most people agree that Jane and the Cleveland specimen are the same taxon. So in other words, if Jane is a juvenile T-Rex, then the Cleveland specimen is probably also a juvenile T-Rex, and then there's no more Nanotyrannus. But if Jane appears to be fully grown, then it verifies that the Cleveland specimen could be its own species and Nanotyrannus is valid. So long story short, they did histology on the bones, which means they were looking at the microstructure. And what they found was that Jane had 13 lags and Petey had 14 to 18 lags. And even though we usually simplify this into saying that that means Jane is 13 years old and Petey is between 14 and 18, unfortunately with lags they're not really that consistent and they're not always indicators of age exactly so we can't be certain about it and on pd the lags are starting to get closer together at the edge but again <laughs> lags are not always the greatest especially with t-rex growth because apparently t-rex growth is very is highly variable so basically usually what you see on like a tree for example is you have these rings and when the tree is young the rings are far apart. And then as the tree gets older, they get closer and closer together until they're basically like overlapping because the animal's growing so slowly. 
But unfortunately with T-Rex, it changes a bunch. So it'll grow really rapidly and then it'll kind of slow down for a couple years and then it might speed up again and slow down and speed up. <laughs> so it kind of has growth spurts going on. And if you pick an animal that just had one growth spurt, it might still be really young, even though it's kind of at a low point in growth, which is what they think is probably happening with PD. But looking at other elements of the nanostructure of the bone, it looks like it was still probably rapidly growing, both of them. And therefore, that all three of these specimens are likely juveniles, and therefore that Nanotyrannus is likely a juvenile and likely just a juvenile T-Rex. So their conclusion is that the simplest answer is that Nanotyrannus is not a real genus and should be a junior synonym of T-Rex. Sorry to Nanotyrannus fans. But it still existed. I mean, if these things were in their teens, whether or not it was fully grown, they were still around <laughs> hunting for, you know, five, ten years at that sort of developmental stage. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't their final size. And it might have been for a lot of them. It definitely was for these guys because they died before they got any bigger. So Sure. <laughs> Maybe they could turn, rotate faster than the adults. Maybe. <laughs> Random speculation. <laughs> yeah. Up next was another talk about T-Rex. There's a good set of T-Rex talks in a row. This one was by Gignac and others, and it was one of the only ones that allowed us to take pictures. So in our quick video postcard that we sent out to patrons, you saw some pictures from this talk. And mostly what they were talking about was a paper which we have covered before, which was all about the bite force of T-Rex. And they talked about how prior estimates of bite force ranged from 30,000 to 300,000 newtons. And a 10x range is no good. So we needed to do a little more thorough analysis about it. And it really depended on the size of the T-Rex in question. And that's the picture that we shared in our video. Because there's a lot of different T-Rex specimens. And they came up with a lot of different bite forces depending on kind of the size of the skull. But interestingly, they also mentioned that animals that eat bones also tend to have very high stomach acid content at about one and a half pH. So that might be a way in the future that we'd be able to tell if animals are osteophagous, if we can see a stomach acid content somehow in a fossil. I'm not sure. And they also pointed out that there's tons of evidence of T-Rex eating bone, including a T-Rex tooth lodged in bone. Ugh, poor dinosaur. <laughs> it was like biting into bone and the tooth broke off. It's pretty gnarly. There's also a Museum of the Rockies specimen of Triceratops that has about 80 bite marks. So that shows that it was capable of repetitive chewing, which is unusual because in the case of T-Rex, it doesn't have occluded dentition. So like with mammals, we kind of chew on things and the teeth all line up the way you'd expect them to. But with T-Rex, the teeth are kind of not touching. <laughs> so I always think of it like breaking a stick over your leg where your two hands on the sides of your knee and then your knee are like the top and the bottom rows of teeth. So it's much more of like a high pressure sort of break than it is a, uh, you know, kind of a puncture or a grinding thing like mammals do. Sounds intense. Yeah. T-Rex was an intense animal. And then rounding out the T-Rex talks from the morning, we had Burnham talking about another juvenile T-Rex, and it was interesting to me that they called it juvenile T-Rex and not Nanotyrannus and didn't mention Nanotyrannus at all in the talk. But basically, the University of Kansas found this T-Rex, and we've talked about it before from the news. It's from northeast Montana, and it's near Jordan, Montana, specifically, which puts it near the western interior seaway. But what they found were some hands, feet, 
vertebrae, ribs, and a partial skull. I think we'd only known about the skull before. Yeah, we knew it was a good find, though. They hinted at that. Yeah, and they also said that they found both maxillae with both sides having 13 teeth. And something interesting that I you don't usually hear is that the dinosaur bones were covered in a blanket of leaves, which helped identify the age of the fossils. And there was even like a cinnamon plant in there and some other ones, which I guess were kind of unique. So then you could specifically date the time. The reason that they think it was a juvenile is the palate is usually arched in adult T-Rex to sort of absorb that really high bite force that we were just talking about, but not in this one. So the palate is actually pretty flat, and so they don't think that it could be eating bone, at least not as effectively. And then one final note that I thought was really interesting from the talk was they said that one really helpful thing during their preparation was that the fossil fluoresced under UV light. The teeth glowed kind of a whitish color and the bone glowed more of an orange. So what they would do while they were preparing it is they would turn off the lights in the lab, turn on a UV light, and then see the fossil glowing. And then the dark spots you knew were still kind of dirt that you needed to clear away. Oh, wow. (laughs) So they were just kind of repeatedly turning on and off the lights, looking at it under UV light so that you could see how your progress was going. That'd be fun. Yeah, it looks really cool under UV light, too. It'd be good for one of those like nighttime museum things where the adults come into the museum. I was just thinking, yeah, good for a party. And that was the last we heard of T-Rex at SVP this year. But there were a lot of other good dinosaur finds. Yeah, there's always a lot about (laughs) T-Rex. There is. Somebody said that it was the most studied dinosaur, which I think is probably accurate. Makes sense. Thank Osborne for that. Mm -hmm. It was one of the early ones and it's very interesting. And he knew what he was doing, as we talked about in T-Rex Revisited when he named it. He named it Tyrannosaurus Rex, partly to make people excited about it. Yeah, that was a good call. He was a good marketer, that guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so up next, not to be outdone by T-Rex, is Therizinosaurus, which was discussed in a presentation by David Smith. And what he was talking about was kind of the musculature of the whole body of the animal. And specifically that they have kind of weird basal arm musculature which is kind of weird for such a late dinosaur, but they have more avian-style leg musculature. So just another way that therizinosaurs are weird, because... (laughs) They're just (laughs) so weird in general. Why not add some strange musculature? (laughs) (laughs) The next presentation was by Fabri, and they talked all about how we've known for a long time that birds only have one ovary, meaning they only can lay one egg at a time, whereas a lot of other diapsids or reptiles basically can lay two eggs at a time. From They make one from each ovary simultaneously. And there's been a question of why and when this evolved. So that's specifically the question he tried to answer. What they started by looking at was a lot of different nests, and they found that oviraptor nests are all arranged pretty much in pairs of eggs. So therefore, if there's a pair of eggs it's probably because they were laying two eggs at a time. And then a little bit later, somebody found a pair of eggs stuck inside an oviraptor. It died with two eggs in it. And it looked like that might even be what killed it. And therefore, if it has two eggs inside it, it was making two eggs at a time and it probably had two ovaries. Pretty excellent evidence. And as you know, oviraptor is fairly late in the evolution of dinosaurs. So we know that dinosaurs had two ovaries for quite a long time. So then the question becomes, when again did they lose that ovary? Seems like it's after oviraptor. 
from what they can find, the first evidence we have or the earliest of a single ovary comes from troodontids, which seem to lay one egg at a time because they have those sort of odd numbered eggs and the arrangement of their nests makes it look like they're just laying one egg at a time. And since troodontids are enantiornithes, that puts like one end of the spectrum. So we think they had the one ovary and oviraptors had the two ovaries. And therefore the single oviduct probably evolved in paraves, which is sort of that space in between. And it's earlier than neoaves, which are the birds that are around today. And most people just consider birds. So to summarize, they said that that a single oviduct, quote, should not be considered as linked to the evolution of flight, end quote. Couldn't it be, though, that maybe this evolved several times? Yeah, it's possible. Like the way flight has evolved several times and other features? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can never rule out how many times something evolved. But I think the main thing is that we don't know of any other reptiles that just have the single ovary. So the simple explanation until this point had been, oh, they did it because having two ovaries is heavier and therefore, if you're going to fly around and you need to be as light as possible, you might as well lose one of them. Got it. But I think this kind of relates to a talk we talked about last week where there are different levels of flight adaptations. And some of them are like exaptations and things that are just kind of beneficial for flying, but aren't necessarily evolved for flying. So this might be something that made it easier for birds to fly, maybe, but they definitely didn't do because they were flying or because they were trying to fly better because before troodontids, they're not doing anything. Like they don't have wings to speak of. So it's their weight is not really a concern. It would have been some other kind of pressure. It also made me wonder if we could Evo Devo a chicken back into having two <laughs> ovaries <laughs> and get twice as many eggs out of them. Probably wouldn't be good for the chicken. I was thinking, yeah, because chickens... After that evolution where they, you know, have just the single ovary, it seems like their eggs might have gotten bigger. Mm -hmm. And then I don't know if there's enough space in a chicken to have two eggs at once. But I don't know. Yeah, it's already taking up a lot of space. It is. And they make one like every day, which is just an insane amount of effort. But it'd be interesting if you could pull it off and we'll make two eggs a day. <laughs> up next was a talk by Gorsak for Makovicki, and it was partially embargoed so i can't talk too much about it but basically the question they were looking at were about dromaeosaur feathers and specifically if large-bodied dromaeosaurs meaning things that are velociraptor size or bigger like utah raptor or dakota raptor had tail fans because they said as they pointed out often in paleo art these raptors do have big tail fans at the end of their tail they have that big pretty sort of poof of feathers mm -hmm. <laughs> And to answer that question, they looked at Tianyu raptor, which was found with feathers along the top of the tail. And it looks like some of them were probably prepared off, meaning that it may have had quite a significant tail fan. And Genyuanlong also likely had a tail fan and is, in fact, probably a junior synonym of Tianyu raptor. So it's possible, but they didn't really specifically answer the question of if they had the large tail fan. So I guess we need more fossils, as they say. That's always the answer. Yeah. And it's hard to find those feather fossils where we find really large dromaeosaurs because the feathered ones tend to come from those like Liaoning with the little tiny birds. Although we did find that one Euteranus 
that was covered in feathers. So there is hope. After that, Gorsak came up and talked about a new titanosaur. Ooh. Yeah. This one was found in Tanzania, near where Rukwa Titan and Shingopana were recently found. Unfortunately, they didn't name it, but they just called it the Mentuka Titanosaur and left it at that for now. But they did find lots of postcranial remains. They said that there were a variety of teeth from the quarry, which is interesting. About this titanosaur, they said that it has some similarities to Malawisaurus, but it has a longer slender foot similar to other smaller dinosaurs. Basically, as titanosaurs got larger, their feet got shorter to help support the weight, but this one still kind of has a longer foot. And since this one is from pretty early in titanosaur evolution, it means that Africa is an important place for sort of the evolution of titanosaurs and to learn about how they changed the way that they did into such huge creatures. Up next was a really interesting talk about what you can learn from really small dinosaur bones, which don't immediately appear to be scientifically valuable, by McHugh. Specifically, they were looking at the Mygat Moor Quarry, which is mostly sauropods and allosaurs, kind of an interesting combination. And apparently it had standing water seasonally. They showed this cool drawing by Brian Eng of an allosaurus attacking a sauropod in shallow water. Oh. <laughs> well, we don't know how it resulted. I mean, you could guess, but they examined 899 bones of sauropods and theropods, not including teeth. And they said that about half of the bones had bite marks on them, which is a crazy high number. And they're, they're kind of trying to explain why so many more of these bones had bite marks on them than you find in other quarries. So usually in dinosaur assemblages, only about 0 to 4% of the bones have bite marks on them. And then in mammalian assemblages, there are quite a few more with 13 to 37%. But I mean, half of the bones is crazy. They said that maybe the bones were exposed for a very long time and they described it as a very stinky place. You could imagine if it's like wet and there's lots of rotting oh, yeah. bodies. So many smells. Yeah. And then I guess, you know, it attracts scavengers to come chew on the rotting bodies. But anyway, they found Allosaurus vertebra with an Allosaurus bite mark as well as a sauropod scapula with an Allosaurus bite mark. So Allosaurus came there and apparently ate other Allosaurus in cannibalism, and then also, you know, scavenged some sauropods or maybe killed the sauropods. They also found insect traces on the bones that are expected to take about 10 to 13 weeks to appear, but these animals were even larger, so they were thinking maybe more like three to six months because I think this is basically once there's no flesh left on the bone and then, you know, they can get to these new spots and it would take longer for the insects to get there. So that's a really long time to have a carcass exposed, especially something that ends up fossilizing. It's kind of an interesting combination. They found those insect marks on about 20% of the bones. They also found root marks, pitting, and other marks that are all interesting and useful in kind of learning about what happened in the environment. They also mentioned something that we've talked about before, that predators tend to go for high economy parts of the carcass first. And basically that means, you know, you go for where all the meat is, the tasty chunks. Yeah. Modern predators do that too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's how we learned about this. But there are bite marks from all over the body, including areas without much nutrition, which they call appendicular, basically. I think that means kind of like at the ends of limbs. Don't waste anything. Yeah. 
And this may either indicate that there isn't a lot of other food available or just that there was a lot of scavenging going on. So we're not really sure exactly why, but they were definitely eating all of the animal, it looks like. Or is it a really tasty animal? Yeah, that could be too. That even the less tasty parts are still tasty. Mm -hmm. The sauropods. Yum. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you always talk about the brontosaurus burgers from the Flintstones. Brontosaurus ribs. Oh, that's what it is. Fred Flintstone makes them look so good. I know. There you go. (sighs) I think the ribs would qualify as a high economy part. Probably. Of the animal. (laughs) But it was interesting to see how they went through this process of sorting all the bones. They used what they called nugget buckets to collect these small unidentifiable fragments And then they went back and they found even 22 more specimens of marked bones, which were kind of in an area that had been turned over by previous people looking through the quarry. And a lot of times you don't take everything with you, you kind of throw it off to the side. But when they looked through it, they found a lot of kind of useful specimens. They also gave a little bit of advice in terms of how they selected which ones might be useful. They decided to keep everything that was two by two centimeters or about an inch by an inch or larger, and then also that had cortical bone, which is that outer layer, because that's where a lot of these important traces are found, like the bite marks and things like that. They also made a guide to help identify which marks come from which activity, so whether it's from an insect or from being chewed on or something else. And they really want to expand the study to other sites so that they can see if Mygatmore is unique or if we're just always sampling full bones and then you don't find bones that have bite marks and things on them because a lot of the smaller bones are the ones that have that sort of evidence on them. So we'll have to see. In this case, we don't really need more fossils. We just need to look at some of the fossils we've already found. (laughs) Up next was a presentation by Heck looking at Myasaura and its transition between bipedal and quadrupedal. I guess this is the third one we talked about where they looked at this kind of thing. It's an interesting topic. It really is because we don't see too many animals doing that today other than humans. But (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's why it's so interesting. (laughs) Yeah. They're just like us. (laughs) So what we think with Myasaura is that it started out as bipedal and then switched to quadrupedal. We talked before about one going quadrupedal to bipedal and then another one that stayed bipedal even though it was huge. But in this case... The way they did it was they looked at the bone's microstructure, especially the humerus, and they wanted to see if the humerus changed and kind of got more robust, better for bearing weight as the animal aged, similar to that sort of change in humerus size over time. And in this case, they looked at six humeri, ranging in length from 22 centimeters or nine inches with zero lags, so a very young individual, up to 62 centimeters or two feet long with seven lags, so definitely an older individual. And they also ranged in circumference from only three inches or eight centimeters, which is probably about like our humerus, maybe a little smaller even, to 222 millimeters or eight inches. <laughs> That's quite a large arm. And what they ended up finding was that the bones did less remodeling in the tibia than they did in the humerus as the dinosaur aged. And therefore, If the arms are changing significantly, especially relative to the leg, then you might be seeing a quadrupedal shift. So its arms are becoming more robust, whereas its legs are just kind of staying the same. In other words, Myasaur probably did switch bipedal to quadrupedal. Another piece of evidence. Then we had a couple Pachycephalosaur talks. The first one was by Goodwin. You've probably seen this one in the news. It's made a lot of headlines. 
Yeah, and it was funny because Ali was like, all these headlines are talking about how Pachycephalosaurus had these sharp theropod-like teeth, but no one's talking about the fact that they found a predentary bone, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is the kind of thing people wouldn't talk about. But <laughs> so basically, the reason it's significant that they found this jaw is it gives us another element to compare between Draco Rex and Pachycephalosaurus because there are some teeth that have been sort of mentioned as likely being Dracorex before. And when they put in the stratigraphy of Dracorex and Pachycephalosaurus, it looks like they were probably the same genus. So again, this was a kind of another piece of evidence to support lumping Dracorex and Pachycephalosaurus together. And then also, it's really interesting that Pachycephalosaurus had sharper teeth because for a long time we've described them as being herbivorous or, you know, at the very least omnivores. But they're pretty theropod-like, which makes you think maybe they were actually eating meat. But we definitely need some more evidence on this before we can really settle that issue. They also said that Dracorex and Pachycephalosaurus may not be the exact same genus. It might be anagenesis, which is where one species evolves directly from the previous one. So they would be separate genera, except like very closely related. In other words, like right along the family tree. But we can't be sure yet. And... A commentator asked the question, which I have by far the most often of all of these lumping issues, which is, how could Dracorex have lost its horns? We don't really see that in any modern animals. And there wasn't really a very satisfying answer. They basically just said, well, they don't get lost. They just change shape. And dinosaurs grow allometrically. But there are things that grow allometrically today that don't lose horns. So I don't really buy that at all. So we, I think we really need a good piece of evidence for how the dinosaur is losing its horns over time before we can say for sure that Dracorex and Pachycephalosaurus are likely the same genus. After that, Carrie Woodruff came up, who we've interviewed before, and he brought up another set of Pachycephalosaurs, specifically Spheriotholus, which is much lesser known. And he looked at three different species of Spheriotholus using geometric morphometrics or 3d gm as it's called which is basically a way of graphing different shape dimensions along different axes and kind of comparing where they exist so like if you can clump them together like these are all longer in this direction and these are all longer in this other direction so what he ended up finding though was very interesting was that spherotholus even though it was around at the exact same time as pachycephalosaurus appears to include three species none of which should be lumped together. And Carrie Woodruff has previously proposed lumping other things together. So he's proving that he's not just a lumper. Yeah, we ran into him and Garrett told him he was going to make this comment. <laughs> Carrie's response is something along the lines of he looks to the science. Yeah, I don't just lump things. I try, you know, I do what's right, basically, which I think he proved using this talk. Yeah. But I had never heard of this dinosaur before. It's interesting that there was another Pachycephalosaur. We talk all the time about Dracorex, Stygimoloch, and Pachycephalosaurus, but we never talk about Spheriotholus. Maybe because it's so hard to say. <laughs> Maybe its head shape isn't as popular. Yeah, it was, it was much simpler for sure. And I think it was a smaller dinosaur overall. Everyone likes really big dinosaurs. Then moving to sort of more ichnology talks, we had one by Stein where... They pointed out that early dinosaurs had really thin, semi-rigid eggs, and then early to mid-Jurassic eggs got thicker, and this may have been a solution to the quote-unquote 
dehydration and predation effects. So I guess there was a lot of competition. Things were trying to eat eggs, so they got thicker. And then also, if it's drier out or they're not buried, then they might dehydrate. So it's good to have thicker eggs. And finally, the last talk that we went to at SVP was by Willie Freemuth for Dave Vericchio, because Dave couldn't make it. And they were looking at nests, which was a really interesting talk. Basically, they were trying to investigate how archosaurs nested and what we can tell from their nest remains about what the young were like. So what they did was they studied 19 archosaurs around the U.S., 15 birds, some turtles and alligators, and these are all living, obviously, so they went to actual sort of active nests. And typically they would sample a one by one meter area and dig about 10 centimeters deep, but they would start by looking at the top and then kind of dig lower and lower. Pretty much exactly the way that you do something if you're doing a paleontological dig. They set up the little grid and then really carefully mapped the entire nest, including whether the eggshells were concave up or down, basically meaning if these little tiny fragments if the inside was exposed upwards or if it was the, you know, the outside of the egg upwards to try to get as much information as possible about the nests. And what they ended up determining was that 13 of the nests were precocial. In other words, that the young were able to fend for themselves almost immediately. And about 13 of them were non-precocial, also known as altricial, meaning that they needed parental care for a significant period of time. But the really interesting thing about it is that the more altricial nests, meaning the ones where the young spent more time in the nest, they found more prey and nester bones in the nest. With the precocial nests, meaning the ones where they basically took off right away, they found that the eggs weren't as smashed up, meaning they basically hatched and then got out right away so the eggs are relatively undisturbed compared to the altricial nests where they stick around kind of making a mess. The other really helpful thing that they found was that buried assemblages compared really well with the unburied nests. So another way of looking at that is that our paleontological record of nests is probably pretty accurate because however things are being fossilized and buried over time appears to be a good indication of how it was before they were buried and while, you know, things were still recent in memory. Unfortunately, they couldn't determine anything about the incubation period, the parental care type, or the environment of the nest based on the eggshell distribution. But it is really cool to start to think about which ones were precocial versus altricial because, you know, that's really important in terms of dinosaur behavior. And if we can figure that out from nests, it'd be really helpful piecing together what dinosaurs were like, especially when they were young. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. 
Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Before we get into our listener question segment, I forgot to mention a few talks from day two of SVP, which was the preparator session. Gary and I actually split up because there were so many talks and (laughs) it's hard to cover them all. So I'll just quickly go through some of them. The first one I wanted to mention was, was by Mariana Di Giacomo, who talked about what it takes to be a good preparator. And preparators are the people who prepare fossils so they can be studied. And seen by us. Yes. So she mentioned that good preparators, they can help shape future specimens for science. So it's really important that, you know, you take the right amount of time and also that we use professionals for this kind of job, not just volunteers or people who haven't been trained, which unfortunately is in the case sometimes. So for example, a lot of times people work on fossils without gloves on and then they leave dead skin cells on them and you know, that obviously affects things. So some tips for fossil preparation include wear gloves. Also, mechanical preparation, which is when you use tools to remove sediment from fossils, something like an air scribe, which is like a mini jackhammer, they can be destructive if you haven't had training. And then maybe you don't realize the damage that's done until years later and you forget how it could have happened. And you might not even, might be even microscopic damage at first. Also, acid preparation, which is when you dissolve sediments around the fossil, requires coating to protect the fossil. And laser preparation, where you project a laser beam over a surface and then use a camera to record measurements, can be useful, but must be tested in advance. Meaning tested so you make sure you're not damaging something. Yeah. And so a couple other talks uh, that were pretty interesting. Brown gave one on was optimizing the suboptimal, basically what kind of tools you can use to do whatever work you need to do. And I liked his quote is the best camera is the one you have. Don't worry about all the fancy equipment. And basically, yeah, use what you have for taking photos, processing images, and then even 3D printing. And then the last one I wanted to mention is by Millhouse, which was developing best practices to improve fossil data quality and accessibility. And the underlying point there, kind of near and dear to my heart, is that it's important to standardize and clean up large amounts of data, like fossil data. It makes it easier to search, easy for anyone to understand if they're coming in, you know, they just got hired or something like that. So yeah, all good tips from the fossil preparators session. And now moving on to some questions that we've gotten, which we haven't answered because we've been busy with SVP. First up was a question by Keegan where he asked, 
What species of modern bird is the closest living relative of theropods, or more specifically, raptors? So, to phrase that in cladistics, it's basically the question of which modern bird is the closest to the base of Aviaceae, which is the group that diverged from Dromaeosaurs. At least that's how I'm going to phrase it. And in other words, what is the least branches from the base of aves in a cladogram? So if you look at a sort of cladogram of modern birds, how many little nodes of significant evolutions happened before getting to the modern bird from that base of the family tree? Unfortunately, there's not a very great consensus about this because we're finding new birds all the time and there are so many birds and we're missing so many key fossils. But there was one really good cladogram called A Comprehensive Phylogeny of Birds, AVs Using Targeted Next Generation DNA Sequencing by Richard O. Prum and others, which was published in Nature a couple years ago. And they have very large overlapping error bars, but in it, Struthio camelus, aka the ostrich, came out the closest on their analysis, meaning with the fewest major evolutions. And kind of makes sense. They're also called paleonaths or old jaws, and they have a lot of sort of basal bird-like traits. Some others in that same group are rheas, kiwis, emus, and cassowaries. So those would all be relatively close in terms of modern birds to dinosaurs, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. But really, there was a ton of differentiation that happened right after the mass extinction 66 million years ago. So there was a lot of changes right away, and modern birds are quite a bit different than extinct dinosaurs. The second question that Keegan asked was, what were the environmental influences that encouraged incredibly long necks in both sauropods and plesiosaur body design, and yet don't exist in any modern species, with the exception of a few bird species? So the with an exception of a few bird species is a good clue, I think. But for sauropods, there were a lot of advantages to having a long neck that are oftenly cited. There's reaching food that's up really high, at least for things like brachiosaurs. There's the efficiency in sweeping a neck back and forth without moving an incredibly huge and heavy body. And being able to specialize in different aspects allowed them to live together, right? In the yeah, same that's ecosystems. true. Like the young and the older ones could simultaneously use the same resources. And then there were a couple factors that allowed them to have such a long neck, which I think might be a little more important because both of those could be useful with a modern animal, say like an elephant getting a long neck might be useful. But up to 60% of sauropod necks were filled with air thanks to their bird-like respiratory systems, which made holding their heads up a lot easier. And also their heads were relatively small, especially compared to something like an elephant. So, you know, that puts a lot less leverage on the neck. They also had a digestive system that allowed them to basically skip chewing and just immediately swallow food so they didn't need that big head because they had that huge body with lots of extra processing in their digestive system. Secondly, they had a wider variety of neck vertebrae count. So they had up to 19 vertebrae in their neck, whereas mammals limit at 7, and kind of famously giraffes have the same number of vertebrae as a lot of their close relatives, which have much shorter necks. Their vertebrae just get way bigger. So having that limitation on the number of vertebrae could be kind of problematic for making a very long neck. But really, I think the key is their fancy, efficient respiratory systems, which allows them to get oxygen constantly. Basically, they constantly get fresh air by using their air sacs in a really fancy mechanism. It's easier to see in a video. But basically, when they breathe in, they breathe into their lungs and their air sacs, 
And then when they exhale, they exhale from their air sacs into their lungs. So while their lungs are exhaling out of their body, so they're getting fresh air all the time. And that makes it a lot easier for them to support such an enormous body. And also on another study that I read, they said it was a lot easier for them to inhale and exhale down their long neck as a result of this style of respiratory system. Whereas for a mammal, it would be more like trying to breathe through a really long straw. They, <laughs> they have some advantages just in terms of their breathing mechanics. So I think that's probably why we don't see, see things like sauropods on land. I'm not really sure about plesiosaurs because we don't really know anything about plesiosaurs. Apparently, they were doing pretty well at the end of the Cretaceous but recently they've found that the long-necked plesiosaurs were relatively slow and their necks were also relatively stiff so they couldn't curl like a snake. So my best guess is just that they were really specially adapted to hunt a specific prey and maybe that went extinct like certain cephalopods and then therefore there's no reason for there to be an animal so specifically evolved to hunt it. So hopefully that helps. <laughs> Then we also got a couple questions from Jake. One of them was, since crocodiles cry, did dinosaurs cry? And yes, crocodiles did have lacrimal glands just like we do, which allows them to like moisten their eyes. But birds also produce tears for their nictitating membrane and eyes because you have to keep these things moist. So I would just say that dinosaurs probably did too because it's important to keep eyes wet so that you can see and your eyes don't dry out. It also cleans them, right? Yeah, you have to get them clean. If there's a little bit of dirt, you have to be able to rinse it off somehow. They don't have hands, even our hands. You can't really wipe dirt off your eye with your hand. You really do need to be able to cry. So I would say, yeah, they probably did. Jake also asked, did dinosaurs bob their heads? And I would say maybe not all birds do. And I watched a lot of videos of different birds, like ostriches, which don't seem to move their heads very much. Some birds are pretty twitchy, though. Yeah, so... The twitchiness might be related to something else, but if birds are the closest relatives to dinosaurs, it seems like head bobbing might have evolved later because since not all birds bob their head, it seems like it's not like a common ancestral trait. And like you kind of allude to in an earlier fun fact, I talk about how birds bob their head while walking to keep their surroundings still. Sometimes it looks kind of twitchy, but it also might help them with depth perception. So birds without binocular vision, like say a pigeon, where they just have eyes right on the side of their head, it's been proposed that they kind of twitch their heads a little bit so that they can get a view from two different angles in rapid succession and then sort of get a stereoscopic view of the world. Because like when you close one eye and you lose your depth perception, if you move your head around, all of a sudden you can kind of get a better view of how close things are based on how much they move relative to other things. So that might be what some of these birds are doing. And then finally, we had a question from Brendan Kavanov, basically asking about the strength of hurricanes during the Mesozoic and also their frequency, specifically because warming global temperatures is proposed to make hurricanes stronger than back then there were, you know, warmer temperatures. So were hurricanes stronger? And this is a really hard question to answer, it turns out. The early Mesozoic did have all the continents grouped closely together, which apparently led to likely two bands of deserts because the water, basically the oceans, are what keep the land at a more consistent temperature because there's more thermal mass. And so when all the land gets clumped together, it doesn't have that buffer and things get a little bit crazy. 
But it was a lot harder to find information about what happens with the oceans in that situation. I did find one article about hurricanes from three million years ago, which says that they were stronger because of higher temperatures of ocean water, and that they also tended to be more common farther from the equator. So there might also be an effect of where the hurricanes go. And we do know basically the driving force behind hurricanes is the sea surface temperature in the oceans. So knowing that the temperature of the ocean was higher back then, we you can pretty easily say that the hurricanes would be stronger. In terms of whether or not they were more common, I couldn't find anything about that. That's a really hard thing to tell from any kind of paleontological record because frequency is just really hard to measure since we just get these random little shots. But I did find another article that talked about storms being more evenly distributed during warmer climates, which seems to be a little bit counterintuitive compared to the previous article. So I think there's still a lot of work that would need to be done on this area to kind of figure out what kind of hurricanes were going on back in the Mesozoic. Thanks for the questions. Yeah, thank you. Sent Garrett down some rabbit holes. It did. And now we have our interview with Ashley and Lee Hall, which we recorded at SVP. So we're joined this week by Ashley and Lee Hall, and Ashley is the Adult Programs Coordinator at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History, and Lee is a preparator there at the same museum. That is correct. (laughs) Awesome. So first of all, you guys had a dinosaur-themed wedding. We did, yeah. (laughs) Not just dinosaur, but Jurassic Park-themed. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, We had to follow up our Jurassic Park-themed proposal. Correct. That I planned. Yep. Where I... <laughs> Should we just dive into it? I blindfolded... Do it. At, well, I didn't tell her where we were going, but we were going into the Mojave Desert north of Los Angeles. So we stayed overnight in a hotel in... Bar- no, not Barcelona. Really? Lancaster, I think. Okay. But the yep. next day she said, where are we going? And I was like, hey, it's a surprise. So I blindfolded <laughs> her. Uh, and then we, we drove, drove north. Out into the desert. <laughs> and I was taking I thought her. I was being murdered. Yeah. <laughs> Just going to put that out, out there. there. Nothing bad happens when someone blindfolds you and drives you into the Mojave. Especially when you've been with them for two years. You're like, I think I'm probably fine. <laughs> well, so we're driving and it's about an hour north of town or so to get to Red Rock Canyon State Park. And, and she was saying, oh, I'm getting dizzy. I'm going to take this off. But I was obsessed. Said, no, no, keep the blindfold on. <laughs> It'll ruin the, the effect. So. We finally get up there, and I, I know just where to park, so we park near this particular area that I'm taking her, and I say, okay, take the blindfold off, and she's like, where are we, what are we doing? And then she saw the beautiful geology in the strata, and was very excited. <gasps> Gasp, shock, and then ah. I <laughs> took a package out of the back of the, I rented a um, Ford Explorer. Yes. And I said, here, open this, and do you remember what was in that? flat box i do it was two jurassic park logo magnets that he then slapped on the side of the explorer <laughs> and i said what's going on <laughs> so she wasn't clued in quite yet <laughs> and so we we had like you know like i brought like a picnic lunch or whatever and, and we had a bunch of stuff and water so then we like, hiked why off. do you have jurassic park magnets yeah well, i was like well <laughs> let me tell you let's go so off we hiked into the wilderness and it was very hot out and i had i had dressed up and I had a flannel plaid shirt on, mm-hmm, and it was like a hundred degrees because it was the beginning of June, <laughs> and um, I was dressing like Dr. Alan Grant in the beginning of Jurassic Park, which I was scene. not aware of until we actually got out to the site. Right, and when we got down there, she sort of looked around, and suddenly she she looked at me, and she thought the door magnets, everything clicked, and she was, uh, "Is this where they filmed the dig scene? Oh my god! This is where they filmed it. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh!" <laughs> 
I was very clever. <laughs> so we're out there, no one is around, and it's really windy. I hadn't anticipated the wind, and I set up a camera on a tripod, and I told her, I said, let's reenact the scene where Alan Grant <laughs> scares the kid with a claw. As you do, because that's where they filmed it, right? So yeah. I was like, totally normal. That's, yeah. that's what we would normally do if we were out hiking somewhere, and it was just a two-year anniversary trip, so I was like, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So I'll go with know, it. She was accepting of my quirks from day I'll one. I'll play along. <laughs> Actually, I was really excited. I was like, yes, I will. Yeah. So we, we get the camera set up, and then unbeknownst to Ashley off in the distance lurking among the rocks i had hired a photography student from like cal state or somewhere and how long was this guy waiting out there uh, he was so patient because we were <laughs> like, like an, an hour. hour late <laughs> so he was just waiting and waiting and waiting his car was actually at the at the spot where we pulled off on the side of the road and actually said oh i hope no one else is out here because i don't want to be I hate other when people. i'm out there and there's other people hiking around yeah. <laughs> i like it all to myself especially and, if you're reenacting a scene and i had to hide my yes. excitement because i was thank god the photographer's still here okay <laughs> and i was like yeah this well i hope maybe we won't see anyone it's a big area yeah yeah this sucks whatever <laughs> So we get out there and we start filming the scene and and I said I'll be Alan Grant because I was dressed up like Alan Grant, like normal a huge nerd. once again. <laughs> and she said okay, and I hit record and then I said you're, there's no going back. Ready? You're, you're forgetting the part where I'm dressed as Ellie Sattler. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as you do, right? When, right. I mean. Honestly, that's my normal field clothes. I have a blue tank top and a, a sort of a coral colored shirt that I like to wear over it. It's long sleeve. Khaki and shorts. it's just silly because whatever, we love Jurassic Park. Yeah. So you were already wearing this? Or yeah, you I got had, her. I, okay. I was like, wear your Ellie Sattler costume today. Okay. She's like, whatever. And you just okay. went with it. Wow. <laughs> she would have gotten clued in if you had her dress as like the little kid that, yeah. Yeah, that looks like a turkey. That would have been yeah. weird. I don't know if like I could have proposed to someone dressed as a kid from Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I start going through the spiel, you know, and and, and uh, I was so nervous because, you know, oh, it's happening and the performance anxiety is on. And I'm like, try and imagine yourself in the Cretaceous period and six, you know, you, uh, enter a clearing. And, and I went through, I had it memorized and I'd, I'd practice it when I was driving. The home. whole monologue. And, and <laughs> yeah. there's the scene, there's a part, that integral part of the scene where it gets real serious and, and Grant pulls out the Velociraptor claw and he says, and he slashes at you with this six inch retractable claw, like a razor the middle toad and I pulled this claw and I said and he proposes to you with this and I had sculpted a replica of the prop and on it was the ring and so I was like he proposes to you with this and I held the the claw uh, up in front of her face and then I, I finished it by turning it into a wedding proposal and and so, so so the so the point is instead of saying you are alive when he starts to eat you you are surprised when he asks you to marry him and I got down <laughs> on one knee <laughs> she was stunned. It was so funny because I was, I was like, and then I realized we're being shout? filmed, and I was like, oh, this is, <laughs> this is on camera. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I see now. I, I see. This a, makes sense. Put a lot of effort into that, and I wanted <laughs> to have the the footage to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> so my brain's exploding. I like am frozen in in every respect. But she said yes. I did. And and I was so <laughs> nervous but relieved, and I stood up and I was like, cool. And I like just I kind of like. Gave her the claw he with like the ring. I was like, here you go. <laughs> and I was like, um, <laughs> you, you prepared for everything, yeah. but putting it on that moment. Finger, yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, she's going to want the holder to go with the ring. I yeah. Mean, yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, speaking of which, I think I need to make that my ring holder. It's not. It's, oh, yeah. it's in a box. Yeah, we just heck? moved. So with, it's got a holder. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
So then, you know, I was very, very happy and celebrated. And then I told her to look over, and amongst the rocks, you know, I don't know, a few hundred feet away. There's the paparazzi. He was there with the camera <laughs> clicking away. So we got some beautiful po- photos of, of oh, everything gorgeous. in the moment. Yeah, and, and actually there was a sign. I remember walking back out from that area. We we played around there and took photos, and it was fun because you can see, you know, if you line the shots up, you can see that's where they were filming there. Oh, cool. Um, and where Ellie and Alan were hanging out and, you know, doing the ground-penetrating radar thing. <laughs> and um, and there's a sign um, posted at the site because it's it's Red Rocks, right? So yep. it's, it's beautiful. And it said raptors are nesting. <laughs> and I was like, yes, that's so cool. Because <laughs> hawks uh, like to hang out there and nest seasonally. So The modern raptors, not yes. the... That's right. The derived that's right. dinosaurs. However, yes. those modern raptors have feet very similar to the ancestral relatives Absolutely. of the Dromaeosauridae. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, cool. and then we had a Jurassic Park wedding and uh, continued with, because we said, well, if we have an engagement, it's going to be really dumb if we don't follow through. Yeah. <laughs> we have a normal wedding and we're not normal anyway. So, I mean, we both were inspired by Jurassic Park from age nine to pursue paleontology. And and so it just kind of fit. And we actually got married at the Santa Barbara Museum of Natural History. Mm-hmm. Nice. And uh, it's a beautiful place. They've got pygmy mammoths. Mm-hmm. They've got uh, giant squid. They've got really beautiful fossils on display. And some tar pits material where I used to work. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so we got married there and had the Jurassic Park themed wedding. Uh, we made our own centerpieces. We made centerpieces for every table. And <laughs> when I mean we made centerpieces, the base, first of all, we bought all these crates and stained the crates to look <laughs> from, like old uh, shipping containers. From wow. Michael's. And then yeah. upon that, built props that were based on scenes integral to the story in the movie. But we didn't so. have to buy any of that because it was just stuff we had. <laughs> right, so, right. Like brachiosaurs and, you know, tyrannosaur and claw or whatever. Our, our main centerpiece for our table was uh, I made the mosquito in amber, mm-hmm. but I put two mosquitoes in there. We and made then, the mosquitoes. Oh. Yeah, and then and then there yeah. was like a light underneath so it glows and and there was one that was like um I, I had this this wreck out debris from construction and mm-hmm. it was like concrete and, and cables and so I made like a T Rex breakout looked like a part of the road with a broken fence tail breaking light. down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I printed off aluminum copies of Dennis Nedry's computer screens for when the park <laughs> yep. was open or when the park was going haywire and and I found the little squeezy thing on there and I'm so I replicated the desk like it was really fun to do because I love making was props fun. yeah but oh my god it took up so much Forever. of our lives oh, <laughs> and we were working on um, publishing a paper that ended up in the dinosaur tracks next steps book um, at the very same time. Yeah. Oh, wow. We, were, we so, were publishing a research paper at the same time. That was a nightmare. It was insane. But <laughs> we did the research and we did the wedding and we only went a little bit crazy. Yeah. Um, it was a very strange time. What was the research paper Full of dinosaurs. <laughs> so the research paper um, was actually about the hind feet of sauropods and actually the claws. So sauropod, as you know, means beast foot. Right, but when you look at a sauropod, the last thing you pay attention to are the feet because they're gigantic <laughs> and they've got long necks and tails and little heads, and there's a whole lot going on other than their feet for you to look at. But this was in relation to a project that I'd started with Denver Fowler, who runs the Dickinson Dinosaur Museum or Badlands Muse- Museum when we were in college together in Montana. Basically, sauropod feet have really wickedly weird claws on their hind feet. And mm-hmm. they're, they're really big. They're hypertrophied. They're not like elephants. People always no. <laughs> draw them like elephant feet, and they have really big claws. Yeah. So the question was, well, what are they doing with them? Because when a sauropod foot, when in your more drive sauropods, when that foot flexes down, like if you curl your toes into a ball 
in your shoe, the claws actually, they kind of fold forward and down and mm-hmm. they overlap and they make something kind of like the, a scraping blade. Like, yeah, like a hoe sort of? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So there were these hypotheses being tossed around about what is the function of this? What is this for? Because it's really unique. What and are they doing with their feet? It's not like <laughs> anything you see in other dinosaurs. Right. So we started, we did a paper several years ago about um, how, well, comparing that claw function to what you see in modern tortoises, like gopher tortoises. Mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, of all animals that you would never expect to dig burrows, tortoises are them, but they do it well and they do it with their feet. Mm -hmm. And there's actually, there's, there's somewhat analogous to sauropod feet, the way that they, when they flex their foot, the claws come together to form like a scoop. Oh, cool. So what we did is we said, well, let's look at this scratch digging hypothesis. And, well, we think that it, it holds merit because we see similar structures in tortoises, and they dig, and so we think this is something that, that has some, some merit to it. And then the follow-up paper that Ashley and I wrote was about testing another hypothesis oh. related to it called the substrate grip hypothesis. Back to scratch digging, though. So we had to look at nests, too. You guys looked at nests of we, sauropods. Well, that, that was we, right? we kind of did a little bit, but that was something we touched on in, in, in the second paper Because you well. can't make a nest without something to make a nest with. <laughs> right, right. And so, like, well, that's what I'm getting to. So ha- okay. The, the I'm spoil it. Sort of the, the alternate hypothesis for that function was, well, maybe they just had that so that they, they, they could grip the ground, mm-hmm. like like tread on a, on a shoe or a mm-hmm. tire, right? So they wouldn't slip around. slip around. So we figured, well, what if we look for trackways where the claw impressions are preserved? Because if if the muddy substrates are where you're going to be slipping around, then you should see tracks that reflect the engaging, yeah. the, you know, putting that foot collection like in the gear. Like a four-wheel drive, you know, off-roader in mud. Yeah. <laughs> so we we looked around. We we dug into the literature. We talked to colleagues so around the world, people. and the people were so good about sending France us reference and photos. Texas and and we Germany. didn't find a single track that preserved any any morphology that indic- any anything that indicated that they were engaging They're that in, in muddy substrate hmm. okay. passively using their feet so what we basically determined was that well um they're not using that in those loose muddy substrates mm-hmm. and it doesn't mean that they couldn't have used that for like sand or, or gravel or something else but what we did see is that the when the muddy sediment they were actually like spreading their toes out a bit hmm. and when they spread their toes out it actually orients the claws with a broad plane vertically, which is mm. kind of good to help against torsion or maybe lateral sliding. But they were very careful steppers, very careful steppers. The, the be all end all is that when you look at sauropod nests, they're actually very long and trough-like and mm. they fit the profile of a sauropod foot very well. So there's ichnological evidence that seems to indicate that at least part of the selection pressure for those big sauropod claws is the need to dig a nest and, and make babies and lay eggs. Yeah, that definitely makes sense when you're comparing it to a tortoise, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Y'all are going to go on YouTube now and start yeah. looking up tortoise videos, <laughs> right? Digging nests. Sea turtles, you know, use their feet, too. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Be prepared to have your minds blown. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys co-authored that paper? Yes. Uh-huh. Yep. Awesome. Have yeah. you co-authored any other papers? Uh, no, no, not yet. Not since. <laughs> not since. We've been We've married been for five years. Yeah. yeah, we actually, I, uh, we both lived in Los Angeles for quite some time. I worked at the Natural History Museum in LA and the La Brea Tar Pits and then uh, saw an opportunity to move to Cleveland. So we ended up in Cleveland, Ohio three years ago. Lee got hired as the uh, lab manager and preparator and I am now in education. So Awesome. Yeah. We love museums. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we like dinosaur museums a lot too. <laughs> Actually, the original oh, all museums really. <laughs> yeah, but dinosaur museums especially. Yeah. <laughs> the original reason that we started I know Dino was to make a dinosaur map 
online of all the museums because really? it's hard to find some of them. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> yeah. And there are so many. There well, are. With yeah. our museum, our museum has one of the best known dinosaurs of its kind, Haplocanthosaurus. Nice. And Haplocanthosaurus, we have the only mounted specimen in the world that is a fully articulated skeleton. It's a big sauropod. It's also the, it's the holotype. It is the holotype. Haplocanthosaurus. The one they described it off of. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you come to Cleveland, you can see Haplocanthosaurus and... That name, by the way, means simple spined lizard, in case you were wondering what <laughs> that mouthful of words was supposed to mean. What else do we have? Oh, well, we have Nanotyrannus. Oh, yeah. Which yes. everyone... The, the dubious, contentious... Yes. Right. And so, yeah, it's sitting there. It's it's down in collections, and, and mm-hmm. I've, I've gotten to to play with it i've gotten to build a new cradle for it and and we take it out to you are the the caretaker of that specimen yeah Yeah, i'm like that that old knight at the end of the last crusade who's like you have chosen poorly (laughs) (laughs) or or whatever (laughs) i don't really say that but it's a fun specimen to have where's the nanotyrannus yeah you could say that if you think it's a juvenile t-rex just say you have chosen poorly yeah (laughs) well no that's the thing it's it's a great specimen to have because it's it's a beautiful skull it's one of the best Tyrannosaurus skulls and found in North America, mm-hmm. and um, it's gorgeous. It, it is a wonderful opportunity to highlight how the scientific process works. Yeah, people come in and they say, "Is it Nanotyrannus or is it T-Rex?" And I, I don't just want to say what I think or, mm-hmm. or whatever the museum's stance is. And the museum stance is it's a great way to highlight how the scientific process works, right? Mm-hmm. What I like to do is say, "Well, this is why it was thought to be this, and why it might be that." And there's a whole history to the specimen because when it was first found by David Dunkel, um, the curator of paleontology back in 1942 in Carter County, Montana, uh, he was so excited, and uh, but he was a fish guy. So he sent it over to ha- have it described, I think it was at the Smithsonian at the time, but in any case, it was named Gorgosaurus mm-hmm. Mancensis mm-hmm. because at the time, you know, they didn't quite have all the stratigraphy sorted out and it looked like these tyrannosaurs they were finding up in Canada. Okay, and and it stayed that way for about forty years, and then in the late nineteen eighties, uh, our curator Mike Williams at the time, and then Phil Curry and Robert Bacher looked at the skull, and they were like, "No, this is not Gorgosaurus. We we know the stratigraphy better. We have more specimens of these other tyrannosaurs, so they erected a different genus for it, Nanotyrannus lancensis. Lancensis because it was found in the Lance Formation in Montana, which is now what we know as the Hell Creek today, and so that. That's set for a while, but now, you know, again, it seems like with a specimen every 20 or 30 years, you know, something else comes up. And so now it's, well, is it? A, <gasps> There's a talk on Saturday. There is a talk on Saturday oh. with Dr. Hollywood About nanotyrannus. So nice. very exciting. The reason things change in science and the reason that it's good that things change is because new technology helps us you know, develop better analytical techniques to study mm-hmm. things that we've had laying These around claims. for a while. <laughs> so with nanotyrannus, we are introducing histology into the mix. Mm-hmm. So, so cutting the bones open and mm-hmm. looking on the inside to figure out if it's an adult or a subadult or a juvenile or what the deal is. Mm-hmm. Nice. So that's it turns out that's the most reliable way to to age a dinosaur. And so there are things about the skull of Nanotyrannus that depending on the person, they could say, well, this makes it adult or this makes it a juvenile. Mm-hmm. My, my personal feeling is it is it's a juvenile. Have you guys talked about histology before? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Okay. Yeah. If people don't know what histology is, look at just Google histology. It means making thin sections of tissue. But with dinosaurs and other extinct organisms, you can actually look inside and see that mineralized bone and other stuff. (laughs) And holy cow, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the trick with Arnautyrannus is that it was just a skull found in a sandstone concretion. We don't have postcrania. However, there are other specimens like Jane at the Burpee that some people say, mm-hmm. no, that's an Arnautyrannus too. Yep. Even though the Burpee says, no, it's a juvenile T-Rex. Mm-hmm. So we can't just keep going in circles and circles. We have to bring right. something new in. So with paleohistology, you cut a slice of bone out of the out of the, the shin bone of the animal, like kind of like, so then you end up with a little hockey puck of dinosaur bone. Mm-hmm. And then you glue one side of that onto a slide and then you you cut off most of the rest of it and save that for more studies and then you polish what's on the glass slide down until it's microns thick and light passes through mm-hmm. put that under a microscope lo and behold you can see the lines of arrested growth or essentially what are like annual growth rings you and the see best the, part is it looks like lisa frank colors it's it's wild you put it under cross <laughs> it's like light. pink and orange it's, it's so and purple mm-hmm. and vivid neon colors so you see the bone tissue, you can tell what generation the bone tissue is, whether it's fast growing or slow growing. The light makes it really pretty. Yeah. The bone's not actually that color. Yeah. So, so <laughs> and, and Holly's presented on this before. So um, w- what we know from those studies is that Jane is a juvenile animal. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So Of what? Of what, though? Of what? Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. And, and so a lot of people will say things like, well, Nanotyrannus has too many teeth to be T-Rex. T-Rex has more teeth. But dental plasticity is, is not a valid character really for defining something as a separate genus or species mm-hmm. when you when you know what dinosaurs are capable of just look <laughs> at the skulls of mm-hmm. ornithischian dinosaurs and how triceratops and the hadrosaurs change and they grow these massive bony crests crazy and and it's not it's not a big deal to like lose a tooth socket or two especially when you look at some of the ceratosaur there's a new species of ceratosaur from china that was described uh, maybe about a year ago where the babies have a mouthful of teeth the juveniles have a an edentulous like premaxilla so they start losing teeth and the adults have a beak what? yeah <laughs> yeah so that was crazy those you know wait was that limisaurus uh it's why well, i don't know i don't remember the name of it but i don't either there's yeah. too many yeah. um but <laughs> essentially yeah so in one animal they lose all their teeth throughout their ontogeny and they turn it into a beak so you can't really say then that having a few fewer tooth sockets as an adult is different because there's it's just as equally valid that that is an ontogenetic character. You know what I think? People care too much about tyrannosaurs. (laughs) I think that's what it is. Can we throw some... Don't drop their microphone. Can we throw down on (laughs) tyrannosaurs? All right. That might be more controversial. I know this is I know dino, but I'm going to interrupt this message with a fish. (laughs) Yep. Record stop. All right. So at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History, we are known for Haplocanthosaurus. We are known for Nanotyrannus. We are also known for <gasps> Dunkleosteus. Dunkleosteus terrelli. Dunkleosteus. Raise the your T-Rex hand if you know of what the that ocean. Is. <laughs> Show of hands. Oh, okay. Well, everyone. Wonderful. Well. So in the late Devonian of Ohio. What is the Devonian? The Devonian is a time period 300 and... 358 to 360, that's give our, our slice, take. right? Yeah. So about a third of, a, well, over a third of a billion years ago. So way before dinosaurs, uh, there were fish in the Midwest. And most of the Midwest was covered by a shallow sea. You know, as you guys know, shallow seas have come and gone. But the Devonian Sea was filled with these big, nasty, gnarly, <laughs> bony-headed fish. 
and the we love them. Yeah, they, mm-hmm. does that predate Jaws, or did other animals have Jaws at that point? No, no, no. These are this is well after the development of Jaws, okay. and you you had uh, vertebrates were at this point in the Devonian they were they were starting to poke around on land. Hmm. So this is when you around the time you'd be seeing things like Tiktaalik. So Jaws oh, cool. have been around for a while. So at this point we have Arthrodire fish, which are these these big. Well, not all of them are big, but we we have these groups of fish. There are also sea scorpions. There are trilobites. There are um, just oceans full of corals. And in Cleveland, this is what we were dealing with. Yep, and your riptrids are hanging out in places. Yeah. Locally in Cleveland, the the environment at the time, like Ashley said, was a shallow sea. North America was sitting over where Brazil is today. So it was farther south. It was subtropical. So my cool point about this is 15 minutes from the museum, just about 15 or 30 minutes, you can find Dunkleosteus. Nice. So in in the world, we actually have the best preserved specimens of Dunkleosteus outside of Morocco. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Ohio. Who knew, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just the thing. So the so the placoderms are all the, the the fish that have big bony looking heads, but it's not it's not armor like a knight. Whereas <laughs> those those are their skulls. It's not on the outside. Ninety nine percent of the of the illustrations of a uh, Dunkleosteus or another placoderm fish will always show the bones on the outside of the body, but that would be like if you ripped all the skin and muscle <laughs> off of your skull and you were just like a skull with eyes in it. Like at Halloween, <laughs> yeah. just a skeleton mask. So, That's really surprising. So put skin on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> even at all the museums we've been to, we always see just the skull mm-hmm. as like an exterior yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. So well, and you see the same with theropods where people people draw the... the vacuum shrink. Oh, the yeah. fester. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So these fish are all part of a very diverse ecosystem. And the, the unique thing, the reason they're preserved in a black shale, the Cleveland shale, is because the bottom of the sea was oxygen starved. Hmm. There was a global anoxic event. So you find black shales at this time around mm-hmm. the world. It's at the onset of the Hangenberg extinction or something. And, so it's a very, very dark... Right. Kind there's of. no corals in Cleveland. No. And there's no benthic organisms, no little crab-like critters Mm-mm. or trilobites or anything. Just death. There's no oxygen, just death. <laughs> but that's great for paleontology because when anything would die and it would sink to the seabed, it was much more likely to be preserved. Very yeah. well preserved. Of, this, of active sedimentation and then, you know, no oxygen to help things decay and rot. Yeah. So what that means is in addition to our diversity of arthrodires, Arthrodires are placoderms that have joints in the back of their head so that the upper jaws can open as well as the lower jaws. We have sharks. Cool. And these sharks... But not sharks like the sharks you're thinking of. (laughs) Not great whites. These sharks look like hand puppets compared to... (laughs) They have Muppet mouths. They don't. They do. The the jaws are right at the front of the face. Like make a sock puppet with your hand. Mm -hmm. Put teeth, a little tiny teeth in it. Like, yeah, it's kind of like if you gave... Kermit the Frog or Kermit the Frog's nephew, <laughs> like a bunch of tiny little three-pronged sharp teeth. Yeah. That's yeah. what their heads looked like. Mm-hmm. They're adorable. Yeah, Google they're them. Cladosalaki. Cladosalaki. Cladosalaki means branched shark mm-hmm. because the teeth have three little tines on them. Kind of like adorable. a little shrimp fork. <laughs> they're But we have complete body fossils. And they're just about as long as, as you if you were to stand up. They're, mm-hmm. you know, anywhere from like... Four to six feet yeah. long. These. There were some larger sharks swimming around, but those are pretty rare. But yeah, we've got some some crazy sharks. So we've got Cladosalaki, we've got uh, Stethacanthus. What's the the spined? Tinacanth sharks. Tinacanth. They had so the sharks back then had big spikes in front of their dorsal fins. Yeah, some of them just are gnarly stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they're very menacing looking. 
So if you're trying to imagine in your head, what is what does a shark look like? What does a shark fossil look a like? A sock puppet with a well, spike on its well, back. <laughs> so right? mostly you I'm find imagining. teeth. Sharks are made of cartilage. And, and they get calcite plates sometimes in their vertebrae, but mostly they're soft tissue. There's no bony skeleton like you or I have. So when, when we find shark fossils, it's mostly their teeth. Um, so these sharks, though, look like if you've ever been in a swimming pool and you've just stretched out on your back and stretched your arms out and floated on the water and relaxed, the sharks look like that. They have, they have died. They have sunk on their backs down to the bottom of the seabed, and they've hmm. been preserved. And the preservation includes musculature, gill arches, cartilaginous jaws, um, skin, and stomach contents as well. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the whole thing. They are, to, to my knowledge, from and I've looked and I've tried to, to find older, but they are among the oldest, if not the oldest, complete shark body fossils known from the fossil mm-hmm. record. Awesome. Wow. And they were a favorite food of the arthrodires. <laughs> Which may explain the big spikes. I don't know that for certain, but imagine eating something with a spike on its back. We do have one uh, Arthrodara skull called, it's called, uh, I think it's a Holdenius, <laughs> but it's kind of like a smaller Dunkelosteus looking fish, but it has a shark spine jammed up in the oh, roof gosh. of its mouth oh. and, and it's caught between the, you could the see how that would dental evolve. blades. So <laughs> what we think happened is that it bit this, this teeny cat shark in half. But when it did that, the spine pierced the cartilaginous roof of the mouth and into the seems, brain case. Seems to me it. maybe some arms race evolution there. Maybe you've got some uh, co-evolution of spines yeah. and arthrodires. And don't this know. still happens today. If you go to YouTube and look up a hor- horn shark videos, mm. you will see horn sharks have little bitty horns in their dorsal fins. And, and you can see them get eaten and spit out within a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so don't let people tell you fish are boring. <laughs> fish are very cool. They definitely are. Especially our fish in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. So for our listeners, if they wanted to learn more about you guys and your work, what's the best place for them to find you? Well, we have have social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at PaleoGuy. And I'm at Lady Naturalist. Right. So to find PaleoGuy, it's got to have two E's because my name is Lee. So it's like oh. it's like paleo guy, but you have to have Lee in the middle. Is that nice. easy, unique? Yeah. So social media is the best way to find us. Also, uh, cmnh.org, Cleveland Museum of Natural History. Come see us. Come see our cool fish and uh, haplocanthosaurus. Nice. Awesome. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks yeah. for having us, guys. Yeah. yeah. This was super fun. Thanks. Long live the dunk. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both so much for coming on and talking about. Your Jurassic Park wedding. And the engagement story is great. Oh, yeah, it was so good. We really want to make it to that museum, too. We hear a lot of good things about it. Yeah, the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. Sounds like a good one. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. 
At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Montanoceratops, which was a request from Philip via Patreon, so thanks. The name means Montana horned face. It was a small ceratopsian that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Montana and Alberta, and it was a quadrupedal. It grew up to 9.8 feet or 3 meters long. It was a primitive ceratopsian. It had claws instead of hooves, and it had teeth in the upper jaw instead of a toothless beak. It was originally thought to have a nasal horn, but it turns out that that was a cheek horn. Montanoceratops was herbivorous. It probably used its beak to bite off leaves or needles, and it had tall spines on the bones of its tail, though the spines were covered when it was alive. The tail was deep and flexible, so Montanoceratops may have used it to signal to other Montanoceratops. The dinosaur was first found in the St. Mary River Formation, and fossils were collected in 1916 by Barnum Brown and Peter Kaizen. The material that Brown found included an incomplete skull, several ribs, some vertebrae, a pelvic girdle, femora, left tibia and fibula, and some toes. Pretty good for a ceratopsian. Yeah. So the fossils are now in the American Museum of Natural History collection. And a reconstruction was mounted in 1935. Montana ceratops was named in 1942 by Brown and Eric marin as a new species of leptoceratops. It was actually called Leptoceratops cerarancos. Charles Sternberg studied more leptoceratops in 1951 and then found that the material Brown described was actually its own genus, Montanoceratops. So now that's the type species, is Montanoceratops cerarancos. David Weishampel then found more fossils in 1986, and a description of these fossils was published in 1998 by Brenda Chinnery and Weishampel. Brown had collected more material in 1910 from the Horseshoe Canyon Formation in Alberta, Canada, and Peter McAvicki described that in 2001, this well-preserved brain case, and assigned that to Montanoceratops. So Montanoceratops was a leptoceratopsid that lived in the same habitat as larger ceratopsids, and it was pretty diverse. The St. Mary River Formation had mountains on one side, and then it had small ponds and streams and floodplains. Other dinosaurs that lived in the formation included Ceratopsians, Ankyceratops, and Pachyrhinosaurus, the Nodosaur, Edmontonia, the Hadrosaur, Edmontosaurus, theropods such as Sornotholestes, Troodon, and a Tyrannosaur such as Albertosaurus. Even though Troodon is now a Nomum dubium. Yes. They also lived among fish and mosasaurs, reptiles, mammals, mollusks, and snails. The Horseshoe Canyon Formation had a valley with channels, swamps, river deltas, floodplains, shorelines, and wetlands, and it also had changing sea levels with marine habitats and lagoons and tidal flats, so it was subtropical and wet and warm. Other dinosaurs that lived in the Horseshoe Canyon Formation included Anodontosaurus, Edmontonia, Euoplocephalus, also Manoraptorans, Troodontids, Theropods, Ornithomimids, Pachycephalosaurids, and other Ceratopsians. Yeah, there's a lot in the Horseshoe Canyon Formation. Yes, and also Tyrannosauroids and Tyrannosaurids, but they mostly had hadrosaurs, which is not surprising. Other animals in the area included, outside of dinosaurs, included sharks, rays, sturgeons, other fish, plesiosaurs, early marsupials, and invertebrates, marine and terrestrial. Yeah, because that was pretty close to the western interior seaway. Yeah, and it was a cool climate, so it didn't have many reptiles, such as crocodilians and turtles, though it's possible that turtle diversity was declining at the time. And our fun fact of the day comes from a talk by Phronimos, and it's that Alamosaurus San Juanensis is the only known titanosaur from North America. However, this is mostly because the holotype is just a scapula or shoulder blade and not even a full one. 
and none of the other titanosaur finds from North America have had a scapula, so we can't tell specifically which species they are and if they overlap with Alamosaurus. So by default, we just call them all Alamosaurus. But we have been finding a lot more bones lately, so hopefully we'll be able to clarify this a little bit more soon and maybe have some new titanosaurs from North America. And that wraps up this episode of Ino Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Dino for some cool rewards. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.